I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. This week, we head to the land of Mascondi guitar and township tech as the Sound Opinions World Tour touches down in South Africa. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cotta of the Chicago Tribune. Journalist Andy Davis is our tour guide to South African music from hip-hop to house. Plus, we hear from one of Cape Town's rising acts. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a track called Chuna Baby by Power Boys from Angola. In a little bit, we'll be taking the Sound Opinions World Tour to South Africa. We'll explore how that country's music scene has developed in the years since apartheid. But before we hop on the Sound Opinions jet and head south, we're stopping over in Mali to talk about an emerging trend in Africa, digital music. That's right, Jim. We just heard a little Power Boys from Angola. They're the exception among African musicians right now because their music's available via legal streaming services. Here in the U.S., digital music accounts for at least 50% of the market, but in Africa, legal ways to buy and stream music are virtually non-existent. Just to give you an idea, iTunes only came to South Africa last year, and even there, digital only accounts for 10% of music sales. That might be changing soon, though, Greg. A couple of months ago, Universal Music Group and Samsung announced the creation of something called The Clique, a radio-like streaming experience that gives you music on Samsung phones. Power Boys are part of that. Vet Cook in South Africa, W4 in Nigeria. The Clique joins a few other digital services in Africa. Deezer, which is French-run, and iRooking, which is Nigerian. We wanted to get some insight into how African music fans are getting and sharing music. So we turned to Portland-based ethnomusicologist Christopher Kirkley. Christopher's the man behind the Sahel Sounds music label, where he's been releasing albums of Malian cell phone music. Christopher, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you're running this label, and you've had several releases of incredible music from Mali. What brought you to this country and those sounds initially? Yeah, well, I was really interested in Malian guitar music, the sort of desert blues stuff that we hear in the West, the Ali Farka Toure or Tanara Wen. Uh, it's this really nice pentatonic, bluesy guitar music uh, coming out of the Sahel. <laughs> Back in uh, 2009, I headed over there with a guitar and with a microphone 
sort of with that intention of uh, learning some of the guitar music and recording stuff on the way. How'd you start compiling these recordings? You call them cell phone music, basically, right? Well, yeah. I mean, when I first got there, I was recording a lot of uh, field recordings. And I noticed the cell phone interfering a lot in my recordings. Well, their cell phones would ring during my recordings. But but more so than that, it was it was people would record, you know. So I'd be recording something with a microphone. And then, uh, you know, a teenager would come up next to me and hold up his cell phone and be recording the same track. And, you know, it kind of brought me down a notch a little. <laughs> I, wow, I'm not really the, <laughs> out here doing some cutting-edge work, right? So I, I started looking at the cell phone and, and asking, you know, well, I bet these cell phones also have a vast archive of music on them. And yeah, I found just a vast amount of digital music. So based on what you saw in Mali, uh, digital music is already up and running. Have you got an example of one of these uh, cell phone hits that you can play for us? Yeah, there's uh, one track I think that uh, sort of captures this is Group Anmetaf, uh, a song called Tanarwin. It stands out as one of these modern uh, digitized tracks, not only because it's transmitted via cell phone, but also because it features some of these new elements of electronic music, like a drum machine, for example. Great. You've got this ancient droning sound, and then you got the drum machine underneath it. So, Christopher, how does the actual cell phone transfer work? Yeah, the music is passed around from phone to phone. In social situations, you can take out your phone, you can play the songs. We're, we're talking about cheap Chinese knockoff cell phones with little, little, tinny, horrible speakers, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, this, the sound coming out of the phone is pretty abysmal. <laughs> if a song elicits some interest... All you have to do is take your phone over, say, hey, can you, can you send me that? And with a few clicks, you can uh, transfer via Bluetooth. And it's led to the creation of these, these songs that are hits on the cell phone network, if you will, but don't exist anywhere on the Internet. So give us another one of these cell phone hits from Molly. What's blowing up the phones right now, Christopher? Yeah, one of the other tracks that's, uh, that's really big is this uh, Caba Blue with uh, Moribiasa. It's one of these songs that would have never have been popular if it were not for the, the cell phone model of distribution. Kabablo, Balti, Machas. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm hearing the tremendous influence of Western hip-hop there. 
Definitely. You can find everything on these cell phones, uh, music collections, Akon, Kanye West, also a lot of just kind of uh, sentimental uh, Western music like Celine Dion. This raises an interesting question. I think a lot of people in the West who haven't been reading about the situation in Mali over the last year, you know, it became the first country anywhere in the world that al-Qaeda actually occupied for a, a good 10 months, taking over the state with the Islamic uh, extremist views. Music suddenly became very much demonized, right? Yeah, absolutely. In the north of Mali, where these al-Qaeda elements took over, one of the first things they did was actually ban cell phone music. They don't, they don't want people playing the Michael Jackson off their phones, so they, they had to ban all cell phone music except for Quranic ringtones, which wow. they were okay with. So digital music has got this underground culture developed, but we're starting to see legitimate digital companies starting to move in. Uh, we just talked about the Clique, this new digital music service that's entering the African market, and got a couple of other ones already established there, like Deezer. What's that going to mean? Is it going to have an impact on the way uh, the music is distributed? In West Africa, I think it would be really hard for that to actually integrate into people's lives. I feel like most of the people who buy digital music are either buying it because they want to help out the artist or because they see it as a moral obligation. In West Africa, the idea of charity to the artist and the idea of a moral obligation are kind of superseded by the financial need. You know, you're not going to put your money there. You're going to use your money to support your family. So do you think the cell phone model for sharing music has staying power? For the future, I, I think that we're basically seeing Internet arrive in West Africa. As Internet happens, it's opening up a lot of doors for musicians to actually upload their music and to share it. Uh, lots of Facebook accounts for bands. And so I, I do think the Internet is really going to be where we see the biggest change. But I think the idea uh, is pretty firmly in the consciousness of people now to just exchange music and exchange it for free. We've been talking to ethnomusicologist Christopher Kirkley, founder of the Sahel Sounds record label. Christopher, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Yeah, thank you. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called Mbube, or The Lion. It was recorded by a South African a cappella group called Solomon Linda and the Evening Birds all the way back in 1939. Now, if you're wondering why a South African a cappella record from the 30s sounds a little bit familiar, here's a clue. In 
1961, the American doo-wop group The Tokens remade Mbube as The Lion Sleeps Tonight and had a big number one hit with it. And that's just one example, Jim, of the musical influences that have passed back and forth between the U.S. and South Africa over the years. And it continues to this day. Absolutely, Greg. Regular listeners of the show know by now that we are on a Sound Opinions world tour, exploring what it means to rock all over the world. This week, we're stopping in South Africa for a look at that country's musical landscape during and after apartheid. As always, we've got a knowledgeable field guide joining us on our musical safari. Andy Davis is chief editor and founder of Mahala, an online music and culture magazine. He joins us from his home base in Cape Town. Andy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Let's start with your personal story. You grew up in South Africa during apartheid. What was your musical coming of age like? <laughs> I hate to say it. I think it was Bruce Springsteen, uh, <laughs> born in the USA. It was soon followed by Johnny Clegg, though. You know, I think people in America and in Europe are aware of Johnny Clegg, but in Africa, he had a really important position, right? I mean, he was kind of like the gateway drug to discovering South African music, right? He was. He wasn't alone, but he was certainly maybe one of the the front runners. You know, during apartheid, it was quite weird for this white guy to be playing black music or Zulu music. The powers that be were sitting there trying to go, okay, you're white, make white music, okay? You, you guys are Zulu, you guys stay Zulu, you know? Mm. It, it, was, it was a very political and bold act to go out there and say, hey, I'm a, I'm, I'm a white Jewish guy from Yeovil, and I'm going to go and play Muscandi music. Trembling heart, body cold, wind and rain take their toll. Perhaps the morning brings a sweet surprise. A new summer will be born, a new hope in the dawn. A honey season, birds and bees singing, humming harmony. Many white people would even know what Muscandi music is. Yeah, what uh, is it? it we, we don't know. <laughs> Muscandi music is a traditional kind of Zulu guitar style. Muscandi, I, th- I think literally it means work of the hand. So it's, it's got a really beautiful and unique sound. I think a lot of people's first introduction in the West to South African music was uh, Lady Smith Black Mambazo via Paul Simon's Graceland record. She's a rich girl, she don't try to hide it, diamonds on the soles of her shoes. He's a poor boy, empty as a pocket. Empty as a pocket with nothing to lose. Sing ta na 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 She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. ta na 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 She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Could you address a couple of things? First of all, that that vocal style. And, and Skatamia? Yeah, give us a little history on that. I think the best way to describe it is an Nguni kind of choral tradition. Totally a cappella choruses being sung in, in traditionally in Guni languages, which is Zulu and Isi Hosa. But wherever you go in South Africa, you know, people sing in that way from kind of traditional gospel hymns to just old folk songs. 
people will do it like on buses. You know, I was at a, a music conference in Reunion Island and we were singing Scatamia <laughs> vocals on the bus, you know, because mm. there were a few Zulu guys who just like felt, hey, it's a bus trip. Let's, let's sing. That's what we do. How did the Zulu traditional sounds become influenced by American sounds, right? Because you had at one point a lot of American radio influencing South Africa with the soul and the doo-wop and even disco into the 70s. Uh, it continues to influence South Africa in terms of, you know, um, I think specifically black America has always had a attractive allure to South Africa and, and, and I think other African countries and, and all, all around the world, really. You know, so we had this wave of kind of industrialization in the, the early 1900s where people were kind of moving to the cities because of the gold rush. And as these kind of immigrant communities came into places like Johannesburg, uh, Durban, Cape Town, they discovered media and jazz. I think that was probably the earliest. Mm. It slowly started to inspire hybridization, taking traditional songs, but then kind of making them more urban. That's really where South African music has come from, I think, is, is these, these kind of traditional folky strains then coming through the filter of kind of global influences. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, but when we come back, more on South African music with Mahala editor Andy Davis. And later, we'll talk with up-and-coming Cape Town act John Wizards. Nous 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the track Good Times by the Johannesburg Band and Performance Art Collective, The Brother Moves On. Now, if you're just tuning in, today is stop number four on the Sound Opinions World Tour, our series exploring global music scenes. Today, we're stopping in South Africa, where a Johannesburg band called Blackjacks caught my attention a few years ago. Jim, Blackjacks is the brainchild of two childhood friends, Mpumi Makata and Lindani Bethelazy. They grew up listening to tapes by N.W.A. and Public Enemy, watching music videos by Sonic Youth and the Smashing Pumpkins. And Makata told me in an interview that for all the differences with South African music, Sonic Youth and the Pumpkins had this transcendent meditative vibe like African music has. Blackjacks also have that quality in their music. It's progressive, it's psychedelic, but you also hear traditional African trance-like harmonies and guitars. The track that caught my attention specifically is called Lakeside from the band's 2009 album After Robots, one of my top ten records of that year. They're a great South African band, Greg, no doubt about it, and they've made some inroads into the American market. Blackjacks are signed to Indiana's secretly Canadian label. Spoke Matambo strikes me as another one of those artists poised for some big success here in the States. He's also from Johannesburg, and he's also signed to an American record label, Seattle's Sub Pop. He's one of the main artists associated with South African township tech. That's a term he coined to describe his own music, which is kind of an Afro-futuristic mix of dubstep, hip-hop, house, and funk. Like Blackjack, Spoke's a post-apartheid kid. He would have been about nine years old when apartheid ended in 1994, and he's just released a mixtape paying homage to his birth year, 1985. I've been hearing that you, 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 you know me And my master stayed You're my friend said go And my mom told me the way That the common sense is no My heart, my heart That's a little bit of Spoke Matamba with You Should Have Called. I love the rhythms on that, Greg. As always on these world tours, we're joined by a musical tour guide, Cape Town resident Andy Davis, the editor-in-chief of South African music and culture magazine, Mahala. Now, Andy, you've described for us what you think of as the quintessential South African pop sound. You've said it's folk music and melodies put through uh, the global filter of songs from all over the world. Where do you hear that in South African music? Well, one of the areas I'm most interested in is the kind of 80s bubblegum scene in the townships around South Africa. 
acts like Chico Twala and Brenda Fussy. For the first time, like people had found um, access to synth- synthesizers and they would take kind of traditional melodies and, and song structures and styles, but then play them on these kind of quite funny, you know, the 80s was quite a playful time. And hmm. that stuff is still captivating to me. I mean, I could always listen to a Chico Twala album. that synthesizer sound was something South Africans picked up from international pop. But the influences also flowed the other way. Again, I go back to Paul Simon's Graceland and that distinctive South African guitar sound he had on that record. Where'd that come from? The Quella, I think you're talking about Quella guitar. I think in the late 50s, 60s, it was a guitar style that kind of came out of the townships around uh, Gauteng, which is around Johannesburg. Quella literally means step up. And basically, so there were these informal drinking establishments, which we call shabines. They, they exist today. They're informal, sometimes licensed, sometimes unlicensed taverns. And they would get raided back during apartheid. They would bring a, a big truck down, like a cattle truck, and just load people into the back. Hmm. And the policemen used to say, quella, quella, which means step up, step up into the truck. came to define the whole genre, the style of music, which is that kind of jangly guitar sound. Another band that's borrowed from that Quella sound, Vampire Weekend. How do South Africans view that band? Because, you know, in my opinion, they deserve a lot of flack from just ripping off that music. I, th- I think the feeling is that, you know, Vampire Weekend, it, it kind of really feeds into their name the idea of like a vampire weekend it's like this kind of little taste and dance with an exotic culture and then kind of you know moving on which is quite a modern criticism you could have of a lot of the way artists deal with influences this feels so unnatural Peter Gabriel too feels so unnatural Peter Gabriel So apartheid eventually comes to an end. What kind of an effect did that have on the South African music industry? Yeah. So in a way, like all the relevant culture during apartheid was was fighting against apartheid. It was, you know, this, he has this unjust system and it was very easy to know where the bad guys were and, you know, who the good guys were. And if your music was to resonate and, and to have an effect, it would be kind of, you know, in this funnel, like against apartheid. It, it, it had a strong impetus you know, behind it. The year the was taken away by 
And then after apartheid, it was just that just evaporated overnight. It was like it exploded and it was a party. But it really did kind of leave us in an empty vacuum of like, okay, what now? Like, what are our issues? What's our story? You know, and it was a bit like a ground zero moment. The result was a, a music genre called Kwaito, which kind of came from a lineage of bubblegum in the 80s and then house music and I think rap. And, and then obviously these local lyrical styles, but it's definitely party music. Well, you mentioned house music and hip-hop. What's the South African version of those two genres sound like? I mean, there's a lot of convergence around hip-hop, house, and kwaito. Those kind of three genres, in my view, are, are quite fluid. You know, genrefication is always a difficult thing, but definitely in South Africa with 11 official languages and all these different influences, it gets even more tricky. But um, let me talk about house first because I think that's something that's probably very... I, I don't know where hip-hop's going at the moment, so I'm, I'm kind of careful about that. But I feel that the house scene in South Africa is something that's unique. This kind of mid-tempo, deep house, rolling bass line sound that you hear from artists like Black Coffee and Kulo de Song. There are elements of kind of vocalization and things, but otherwise it's really just rhythm. That's great, but you, it sounds like uh, hip-hop was, is confusing to you at the moment. Why? Well, okay, so we've got hip I mean, hip-hop kind of crosses over with kwaito. I haven't really worked out what the difference is between kwaito uh, vocalization and hip-hop in vernac, or what they call vernacular. You know, so someone who's rhyming in isiklosa or isizulu or sisutu, setswana, sepedi, we've got a lot of languages, yeah. Yeah. So Or Afrikaans. If someone is singing or rapping in a in a traditional South African language, are they, I mean, are they Vernac hip-hop or are they Kwaito? And everyone is pretty fluid around that. Any artist you could recommend? Drimanskap is a Vernac hip-hop outfit out of the Cape Flats, so based in Cape Town. But Cape Town, I don't know if you know, is, is kind of surrounded by these big ghettos, basically, or, or kind of informal shantytown, which is which is where the majority of, of, of people who live here reside. And this band comes from this area, making kind of what is vernacular-relevant, you know, hip-hop. 
So if you want some Vernac hip-hop, you go to Dreamenscop. Now, you've also said, Andy, that there are people rapping in Afrikaans. I mean, that is that is an ugly-sounding language. I'm not being prejudiced at all. It's just so <laughs> many consonants, you know? People rap in that language? Uh, definitely. But Enda mm. is this Afrikaans like white Afrikaans act from Pretoria that, that is probably the most exciting thing in for me in Afrikaans music right now. Alright, alright, that's even making Afrikaans sound good. Interestingly enough, Afrikaans music in this country is one of the easiest ways to make a living from music because there's a there's a whole kind of nationalistic interest in supporting the arts because Afrikaans is seen as this kind of set upon culture language and and so so Afrikaans people buy their own music. Mm. The interesting thing about Bitter Ender is they're busy trying to redefine what it means to be Afrikaans because you must understand after apartheid it was pretty uncool to be Afrikaans and during apartheid your whole culture kind of stood for for legalized racism. So for the guys in Bitterenda they're very conscious about kind of trying to hold on to the positive parts of their culture and get rid of the the stuff that doesn't work to get rid of the rubbish. So Andy, uh, you know, there were Afrikaans musicians who were at the forefront of the anti-apartheid movement. Is there a reactionary like let's go back to the old days underground or uh, or ha- has South Africa really moved past that? Look, there's definitely a lot of racism and unfortunately in South Africa the, the there's no more legal racial discrimination but those uh, lines of segregation are kind of enforced through economics and kind of social economy so i don't think there are any kind of white racist underground um cells that are relevant in any way i mean that's the beautiful thing about the the south african story is that people from both sides kind of embrace this idea of multiculturalism and kind of oneness and we've got the muscle memory of of that you know from 1994 it's just you know 400 long years of it being one way and now trying to turn it around in in what you know 19 hard to overcome it takes time hard to overcome yeah you're listening to Sound Opinions. We're talking to uh, Andy Davis, the editor of the South African music magazine, Mahala. Andy, is there an artist you want to leave us with? This is, uh, I think this is probably one of the nicest things I've, I've heard. One of my favorite albums of 2013. Sherry McNeil was uh, in a band called Harris Tweed. It was very twee, tweed, twee kind of sounding, pop, acoustic, folky music. But the lyrical content was always about kind of, you know, birds and bees and, and beautiful, happy people and trees. And She did quite well with it and got a record deal and moved to Germany a few years later. She had to change the name of the band because the Scottish Tweed Association, who owned the trademark for actual Harris Tweed, um, <laughs> told her 
that, that she had to change the name. So she changed it to Dear Rita. She moved to Germany, to Berlin, and, and then obviously the Berliners and the, the Germans were like, tell us about Africa, tell us about, you know, racism, tell us about your history. And she kind of realized, like, you know, that she'd grown up in a bubble in South Africa and that she'd never, I mean, and this is true for a lot of people. Um, she never have to, never knew even what the apartheid story was all about. She kind of got on her computer and she researched our history and she produced a, an album called Ravonia, which is a suburb in Johannesburg that she actually grew up in. But it's also the suburb where Mandela was arrested during the treason trial at a place called Lily's Leaf Farm. Nicholas invited me to visit at the farm. We were playing in the yard. I saw them in the barn. White and black together said, I just stood and stayed. The whole album is this concept album that takes us through the kind of recent history of South Africa. It's not even really the kind of the genre of music that I'm totally interested in, but it, it kind of feels like it was kind of, she did this for me. Hmm. Um, she didn't, but you know. <laughs> Them Away by South African artist Dear Reader, a favorite of 2013 from Andy Davis. Andy Davis is founder and editor-in-chief of Mahala Magazine. He joined us from Cape Town. Andy, thanks for being on Sound Opinions. Oh, what a pleasure. Feels like we just scratched the surface. Hey. Hey, John. John. I'm calling John. That's a track called Lusaka by Night from an up-and-coming band out of Cape Town, John Wizards. It's from their self-titled debut record, out September 2nd. And the two main men behind the band are John Withers, a white South African from Cape Town, and Emmanuel Nazaramba, a black Rwandan. We wondered what it's like to be a band in South Africa almost two decades after apartheid. And so to round out our tour stop, we asked John and Emmanuel to join us for a chat from Cape Town. John and Emmanuel, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thanks. So, John, Emmanuel, uh, can you tell us how you guys got together? <laughs> well, I was uh, about two or three years ago. Hey, Emmanuel? Uh, three years ago. Yeah, three years ago. Uh, I was working at a studio, and uh, there was a coffee shop across the road, and I used to go there quite often, and Emmanuel was looking after cars there. I think you've been in the country for about a year or two? About one year. Something one year. Like that. You know, we'd always um, see each other, and then one day I had my guitar on my back, 
and uh, he asked me if I was a musician and we started speaking about music and yeah we hung out a bit and then um, I went away for a bit and Emmanuel when I got back couldn't find each other Emmanuel had moved to a new place he'd quit his job wasn't using the same number anymore so I think maybe a year passed and then I moved to to a new place in center of town and one day I was walking down the street and Emmanuel happened to be staying on the same road yeah just staying on the same road and um, yeah I invited him back up to my place and we started working on music again it was meant to be obviously you kept running into each other right so, yes yes so Emmanuel you came from Rwanda to Cape Town right uh, to be uh, to be a musician did you have a success uh, pretty quickly after moving to Cape Town, or how, how did that go for you? Yeah, it has been terrible, so hard, so that <laughs> I found all guys from my country, they are just watching cars, so I can't survive all the money I got finish paying the rent of the house, so finally I have to go watch cars. So I could not do nothing about music. No one knew that I'm a musician. It's John... Is the first man I meet, and we try to do something together. Wow! So, tell me, John, when you met Emmanuel, tell me how the sounds blended, how how you came to this John Wizard sound that's uh, so unique on this record. I guess there, there are two fairly distinct parts to it. The music had had evolved quite separately to Emmanuel, just the sort of instrumental stuff, and I'd always been trying to work my own vocals into it, and I just it just really. Something about it just didn't sit very well with me. And then when I met Emmanuel and, and started working with him, it seamlessly sort of worked together, and from there onwards, it just uh, it was just sort of finishing it off. Emmanuel, you're singing in your native tongue. What are you singing about? Uh, I sing most of time about love sometimes. Uh, my songs from my culture, from my country, uh, like teaching people. Like moralizing like, songs. Uh, like uniting people. Mm. Because in Africa, we got a kind of people, they want just to to sing like American and to talk what they hear people from outside, they teach them. And I want to educate Africa people. They should get knowledge from home. So wherever they go, they have identity of where they come from. What is it like to be a band in South Africa today and to try to make your living as musicians? You you have all these small bands who have these small followings. and I, I don't know many people that do manage to survive simply off um, being in a band uh, and performing. I make money by writing stuff for adverts, and Emmanuel works in a clothes store. Uh, yeah. South Af- what you're saying is South Africa is not the promised land. Don't All bands shouldn't come to South Africa because there's so much work there for <laughs> bands, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We should mention that you're still the exception in South Africa, and in America for that matter, in terms of being an interracial band. How do audiences in South Africa respond to that? The people actually, they like us because they see the style we are living. 
as me as a black man singing with white people and they see there is no any problem because some of them they try to bring negativities but they find that it is not the because I'm not from South Africa mm. so I can see the problem the people they have in South Africa Ikana mimi tunapiga mziki hapa kwenye studio usiku wa leo hakuna kulala sisi tumechacha sisi tumechacha hatuna hela mfukoni ila sisi tunaruka na mdundo wa mziki Eyo man John Wizard Come on John and Emmanuel's band is John Wizards from Cape Town guys thanks so much for coming in to sound opinions Yeah it's a pleasure We've got a Spotify playlist from our South African tour stop up at soundopinions.org. And we want to hear from you. Drop us a line talking about your favorite South African artist or anything under the rock and roll sun at 888-859-1800. When we come back, I drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and as often as possible on this show, we like to venture out to the desert island and pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox to play a track we cannot live without. And Jim, this week it's your turn. Greg, I'm not as big a fan of the country music as you are. I like the really old, raw stuff, the Carter family kind of stuff, the old country stuff, more modern, and not a lot in between. But I do love what I'm going to play is one of the great pop country crossover songs of all time. You always talk about that AM radio under your pillow. I had one, too. I fell in love with this tune in 1971. I'm about six or seven years old, and I'm pondering the mystery. It had come out several years before. 1967, Ode to Billy Joe by the great Bobby Gentry. Now, what a fascinating woman Bobby Gentry is. I mean, she was, she was brilliant. She grew up in poverty in Chickasaw County, Mississippi. Her 
Grandma had to sell the family's milk cow to buy her a piano. She moves to Las Vegas eventually, becomes a burlesque artist, then goes back to California, studies philosophy (laughs) at UCLA, and then goes on to the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music. She began writing her own material and producing it at a time when nobody did that in pop music, let alone country music, which was even more conservative. She breaks out big on her first two albums, and especially... What was supposed to be the B-side of her first single, Ode to Billy Joe. At the last minute, the record company decides, wait a minute, this is a pretty darn catchy song. Let's put it on the A-side. And they chop it down by a third. She recorded it just alone with her acoustic guitar. And also at the last minute, Capitol Records adds on an orchestra. Generally speaking, the additional orchestra is a bad idea. But here, I think the way those violins just punctuate some of her lines of lyric are absolutely perfect. Now, this is a story song about uh, what happened up there on Choctaw Ridge and the Tallahassee Bridge, you know? Somebody who looked a lot like the narrator of this song was seen with Billy Joe throwing some mysterious thing into the river below and... Then Billy Joe jumps in and kills himself. All of this is coming out in a conversation over dinner with the older brother, with mom, and with dad, none of whom seem particularly surprised that this kid <laughs> killed himself or, or are particularly you know, struck by the tragedy of it all. Everybody asked Bobby Gentry, what was it that they threw into the river? People had all these different theories. There were flowers. There was a ring. There was a draft card just in the middle of Vietnam. And Gentry always said that they're missing the point. The point is the way that people are reacting to the death dinner table, and only the narrator is really moved and crushed by this, and everybody else is indifferent. These are poor people who cannot relate to other people and the tragedy in their life. That's what she said the song was about. You know, a fascinating footnote, at a time when absolutely nobody ever retires, Gentry, who had kind of a, you know, not a great time as a star, she was married twice, neither marriage succeeded, she just began uh, receding from public view in about 78, 79, and, uh, you know, lives now retired in Los Angeles. Doesn't do any of these comeback tours, doesn't do Mm. Vegas, but this song is immortal. It was so popular, Bob Dylan parodied it on a song called Clothesline Saga from the Basement Tapes. Now that's a sign of success when Dylan is making fun of you. Here's Bobby Gentry with Ode to Billy Joe from 1967 on Sound Opinions. It was a third of June, another sleepy, dusty Delta day. I was out chopping cotton and my brother was baling hay. And at dinner time we stopped and walked back to the house to eat. And mama hollered at the back door, y'all remember to wipe your feet. And then she said, I got some news this morning. From Choctaw Ridge Today Billy Joe McAllister Jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge Papa said to Mama As he passed around the black-eyed peas Well, Billy Joe never had a lick of sense Pass the biscuits, please There's five more acres in the lower 40 I got to plow And mama said it was a shame about Billy Joe anyhow Seems like
comes to no good up on Choctaw Ridge. And now Billy Joe McAllister's jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. Brother said he recollected when he and Tom and Billy Joe put a frog down my back at the Carroll County Picture Show. And wasn't I talking to him after church last Sunday night? I'll have another piece of apple pie. You know it don't seem right. I saw him at the sawmill yesterday on Choctaw Ridge. And now you tell me Billy Joe's jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. Bobby Gentry with Ode to Billy Joe, my Desert Island jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are the Rock Doctors, and we're going to help a martial arts instructor find some music to pound heads to. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern is Megan Murphy. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and sadly, Annie Minoff, whose last week with the show has been this week. And one last tidbit, this week is the 37th anniversary of George Harrison being found guilty of subconscious plagiarism for my sweet lord ripping off She's So Fine. And she and Billy Joe was throwing something off the Tallahatchie Bridge. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. My name is Matthew. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, but just moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And on a long train ride, I was re-listening to some older podcasts, including one of my favorites you guys have ever done, the, uh, the Year Prunk Broke, the two hours of it. And then I got to thinking about this whole idea of, you know, like anyone can do it and DIY and, you know, everything that's unfolded over the last decade since that movement started. And one of my favorite bands is uh, is the Dirty Projectors from New York, who are just amazing and a bunch of music school nerds who are very the opposite in their approach to music. It includes a lot of classical influence, a lot of jazz influence, and at the same time, it, it reaches the point of almost being a little bit showy. If you had loved, you might have just seen this. Either way, something that I thought was interesting was even though that they come from, you know, the background of, you know, let's all, we can all play, we can all, anybody can be a guitar hero, they definitely are coming with the opposite vibe. And I was wondering, can you guys think of any other bands in that sort of vein, in the sort of underground, maybe more experimental or more psychedelic rock that comes at it with that approach? like to hear what you guys think. All right, take it easy, guys. Good show.
Hi, my name is Rob Waters. I saw an article on uh, NPR called Can You Learn to Like Music You Hate? It says, um, highlight line here, is the researcher's corollary finding is that the more participants understood about the musical structure down to individual chords, the more they enjoyed what they were hearing. And I've always kind of felt that way about punk music. I just found that it's something that I should like, uh, but you know, I just haven't been able to find out why or, or find a way to enjoy it. Uh, and as I've gotten older, I've, I've learned to like more and more types of music. I, I can appreciate noise when it's melodic, but I just haven't found a way to really appreciate punk, and it's something that's talked about on, on your show all the time. And so you know, I, was, I was thinking that that's a, a prime candidate for a rock doctor, finding a way to uh, you know, break down that genre of music and enjoy it. I appreciate your show. Thanks. Donna Raskin. I'm from Pennington, New Jersey, and I was very interested by the idea of talking about um, civil rights protest, protest music and 60s. I grew up listening to pop music in the backseat of my parents' Buick Skylark, and I remember very vividly listening to songs like Everyday People and Love Train and thinking that that was what everyone wanted, you know, that people of all colors and races and nationalities would join in and form a love train. And of course, um, I grew up and found out that that was not what happened and was not what everybody wanted, and I was shocked. I think that it's, it's still the place of music to um, show us the way to go. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.